Welcome to Art Matters. I'm Farron Gibson. This podcast is produced by Art UK, the online home of the UK's public art collections. This is season three, so I know you know what I'm about to say next. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at artuk.org, spelling out the word dot. Why? Because we share images and content that I know you'll enjoy if you like listening to this series. We all know someone who claims they were into certain music or fashion movements before they were cool. It's nice to feel like you've discovered something and possess a little piece of it for yourself, but the flip side of that is that these gems can remain hidden away and not get the full recognition they deserve. When it comes to the arts and sciences, influential figures can be forgotten in history for a number of reasons, but there's no doubt that this disproportionately affects women and minority groups. Luckily, there's recently been a wave of people working to redress this imbalance. Forgotten Women is a series of four books, and each book dives into the profiles of 48 uh, exceptional, interesting women who have been kind of left out of the history books. That's Zing Sing, UK editor for Broadly and author of the Forgotten Women series. So we've got the scientists, the artists, the writers, and the leaders. And I was approached to write this series by Octopus, which is part of Hachette Publishing. And they kind of said, you know, we have this idea to do something around women's history. And I said, well, great, because I'm the kind of person who kind of squirrels away these kind of stories and facts and things like that, just to, I don't know, wheel out on a rainy day in a pub to bore all my friends with. So you approach the right person. (laughs) Um, And then from there, we kind of just hammered out the concept. They were the ones, I think, who came up with Forgotten Women, the title. And then I kind of worked with them to understand what that would look like in print because I was very much of the idea that you know we should talk about the fact that you know these women haven't been forgotten through any fault of their own it's more to do with the forces of history with who's been able to kind of put people in the history books and why and that's the reason why these women have been unfairly left out of you know the mainstream conception of his history and success. How do you determine whether or not a woman has been forgotten? It's an interesting one. So I think I've had some people come to me and say, oh, you know, you've included this person, but I've heard of her. So she's clearly not forgotten enough. Um, <laughs> sticklers. And, yeah, the sticklers, you know, um, the people who like to nitpick. Um, but I just approached it from a very generalist point of view. So, you know, I'm sure if you are really steeped in art history, you would know quite a few of the names in the artist. But what I wanted to do was approach it from a general perspective. Quick, name five women artists, forgotten or otherwise. I'll give you a little pause to really try. How many did you come up with? If you couldn't think of five, you're not alone. There's this amazing film that I reference in the introduction to the artist called Women Art Revolution. And it's part of that documentary, which kind of looks about uh, how women have been left out of the art movement of the 20th century. The filmmaker went out on the street and asked people, you know, name five women artists. And people really struggle. Like people really, (laughs) past Frida Kahlo, people really did not know what to say. And um, that's the kind of person that I wanted to be writing these books for. You know, people who, you know, want to try, who want to know and want to learn more about these histories, but might have a very limited understanding of, you know, the people who were around in that period. 
When many people become aware of the imbalance of gender representation in history, they seek to supplement what they've learned in school. The only problem is that if these things aren't part of wider popular culture and historical knowledge, knowing where to start to find this information can be difficult. How can you look for stories that you don't know exist? A lot of the time, these women were talked about in academia. But again, academia is such a closed circle. Um, and this is no offense to academia, but it's hard to kind of pass through the divide between academia and mainstream knowledge. You know, at what point does someone say, for instance, the hidden figures women, you know, they went from being part of a very specialist history um, to becoming a mainstream Hollywood film. Mm -hmm. At what point does that knowledge kind of filter through? So a lot of the stories that I found, a lot of the research was done by people in academia and it just hadn't either been picked up or hadn't been framed in a way that made it attractive to just the general reader. And that was kind of what I was drawing from a lot. So a lot of academic texts, um, a lot of reference books, a lot of very old source material from the British Library. So I got very, I got um, very well acquainted with all the librarians. So about that number of 48 women per book, this isn't an arbitrary number. It's an interesting Easter egg of the book series that offers another nugget of women's history. It's a significance that is now uh, kind of irrelevant, which is kind of good in a way. Um, so it was 48 because we didn't want to make it like a pat. 50, 60, because, you know, those numbers have no meaning. So instead, we wanted to go for the number of women who have won the Nobel Prize in its, I think it's over a 100 year history. And at the time, uh, when I was writing the books, that was 48. And then uh, last year, there was a bumper crop. And I think three women won the Nobel Prize. And so it pushed it up to 51. But unfortunately, by then, the books had gone to print. So we couldn't amend that. So now you have to do other editions and add mm -hmm. the, the other three. <laughs> yeah, I need to do like an insert of like yeah. three extra women for each book and go around putting it into every yeah. copy. We have a painting on Art UK of Ada Lovelace that's in the Government Art Collection. It's one of my favorite paintings to share in conversations about women in STEM because for a long time, people weren't aware that Lovelace was the first mathematician to recognize the computing potential of machines. She wrote the first computing algorithm, making her the first computer programmer. Zing spent a significant amount of time diving into the experiences of 192 women across science, leadership, writing, and art for her series. With that much data, I wondered if she'd noticed any patterns that might provide some insight into how a person or group can make a phenomenal contribution to society and still get lost in history. Unfortunately, quite a lot of them had terrible uh, encounters with men. <laughs> <laughs> Not to say that the men were bad, but because of the circumstances of the time, they were expected to kind of step down after they got married. They were expected to take a backseat. They were expected to focus on motherhood and being a homemaker. And for that reason, a lot of their careers were curtailed. Um, it, it, it would be unfair to say that it was terrible encounters with men, although some people did have terrible encounters with men. Um, but it was just sort of encounters, I guess, with what you would call patriarchy. Um, which kind of led to them either their work not being recognized, them not being given the credit that they deserved, and them having to like toil in the margins. Um, you see that a lot with the women in the book about scientists. So mm -hmm. for the longest time, because there was this kind of institutional barriers to women entering science, they had to take on volunteer jobs or lab assistant jobs or jobs as computers, which before the advent of, you know, 
the computers that we know now were people who basically did the grunt work of mathematical calculations, you know, the kind of the kind of basic data stuff that we associate with computers now. A lot of that was done by women and a lot of that was done by women who, if you had given them the chance, if they had been born in this day and age, would probably be incredibly accomplished scientists. But because that was the opportunity available to them uh, under the times of the age, uh, that was what they ended up doing. Looking at the works of these women also helps provide intersectional perspectives on the experiences and challenges of women from different backgrounds. Amrita is one of my favorites in the book, although I probably shouldn't play favorites because she was such a she was such a vibrant personality. You know, she had also this encounter with the West. So she went over to Europe to train as an artist. And then she kind of found herself on the margins a bit because she was always expected to play the kind of exotic other and she ended up going back to India. So it was very much a story of, you know, this girl grows up in India. She doesn't feel like she can kind of fulfill her artistic potential. She ends up going to Europe, but then she she's not quite European either. And she ends up going to India and fully committing to painting uh, the lives of the people around her with painting the reality of what it means to be Indian. And I think that's really beautiful because, you know, it kind of shows that the world of art is a world that isn't just confined to Europe or the West. It's also about people coming over going back. It's a world in flux about migration, about ideas moving from place to place. And I think women are some of the very best people to our place to do that because they have grown up and a lot of, you know, a lot of us have grown up in situations where you felt curtailed, where sexism, you know, kind of affected your lives and influenced you. You're far more alert to the ways in which, you know, people on the margins are able to express themselves. And I think, you know, that's fundamental to art, you know, this understanding and empathy with those on the margins, those on the outside. You may have seen the Google Doodle celebrating Turkish artist and Hashemite princess Feronisa Said on the anniversary of her birthday in January 2019. She was also the subject of a retrospective at Tate Modern in 2017, yet her story remains largely unknown by many. She actually married into the royal family and she was a you know diplomat's wife because that was what the prince did. And she just took up painting. She was, I think she was one of the few women um, in the country to actually learn painting because she had that access and um, because she lived a very, very privileged life. And then for her, everything came crashing down around 1958 because that was when the Iraqi royal family was overthrown by the military. So she and her husband were ordered to basically leave the embassy where they lived and just have this massive fall from grace and it left her completely traumatized she was so depressed and I don't actually think her art ever recovered really because the stuff that she painted before was was so colorful so powerful very abstract and she kind of just went back to doing more realistic stuff if you like meticulously executed still lives you'll enjoy the work of Clara Peters an early woman artist of the Dutch golden age Perhaps one reason why she's largely unknown is because so little is known about her. She was born in Antwerp and, uncommonly for a woman in this period, established an art career in Amsterdam. There's no record of where she trained as an artist, and it's possible she learned from family members. Even more unusually, copies of her paintings suggest that she may have trained others. Only 40 of her works survive, and among the still lives, you can find little hidden self-portraits in the reflections of the items. I really love Clara Peters' work because I'm a massive foodie and 
that's what she painted. She was very good at painting food. And I wish I'd seen the paintings in real life because it's obviously, you know, it's very different to seeing it in a book or on screen. But even when you look at Clara Peters' work on like the most low resolution smartphone there is, you can like smell the food. And she was just really good at painting these huge set pieces of food. So. Um, you'd have uh, a set piece of, you know, very traditional uh, breakfast food. So, you know, pretzels, for instance. And then you'd have like this banquet of like delicious food, meats, cheese, golden goblets. And she just painted all of it with such realism. And, um, you know, you can almost taste the food is how I would describe it. Mm. Um, she could paint this a bread roll kind of like torn in half. And, you know, if you look very closely at a, bread, a piece of bread that's been torn in half, you see the little peaks of like, whiteness and the dough and the kind of aerated nature where you know they've churned the dough and it's been baked in place like you can see the tiny little air holes and it's so beautiful and i really really want to see her work exhibited in real life i think there was a show at the prado museum in spain mm -hmm. um, but unfortunately i couldn't make it down to see it if you want to see work by peters in person shipley art gallery in gateshead and the ashmolean museum in oxford each have a painting by her in their collections Another artist from the series that can be found in UK collections is Elisabetta Serrani. Paintings can be found at Corpus Christi College, University of Cambridge, and the National Galleries of Scotland. She grew up in Bologna, which at the time was a was kind of a centre for intellectual learning. It was like a big cultural hotspot um, in the 17th century. And she's really unusual in that she was really fated for the, for, for the time. You know, she, people said that she was an amazing painter. She got so many commissions, like people would come visit her and like demand to, you know, commission her on the day after seeing her work. Um, and she was really just exalted. Um, and the terrible thing is that she met such an untimely end. Um, I think she died at the age of 28 or right before she turned 28. And by that time, she was already being commissioned like 30 times a year which is kind of a crazy amount if you consider the amount of work that goes into an oil painting yeah and there were all these rumors that she'd been poisoned by people who were jealous about her talent um, and it was never you know it was never quite conclusive but you know this is kind of these murder allegations were kind of what propelled her into even more kind of fame and stardom unfortunately it was posthumously um, but I think she's a really interesting case because I think that a lot of the times it's very easy to look at the history of women art and be like well it was terrible for the longest period of time and it was only until quite recently that things started to get better but Elizabeth's case kind of proves that you know sometimes there were these women who you know whether it was just luck or circumstance or talent probably you know a combination in her case of all three that you know they were able to get a lot of the recognition they deserved I think it's interesting when you really think about how hard it was to become a woman painter at this time or a woman artist in this time, and then to go beyond the fact of just doing it at all to being extremely commercially successful. It really goes right. to show you the level of talent that she must yeah. have had. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, it's a struggle that I think artists still face now. You know, it's one thing to, you know, find the funding to be trained. It's another thing to gain recognition. It's a whole other thing to be commercially successful. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that transitions nicely into kind of, do you feel like things are changing in the art world now? Because there has been an increase maybe in the last year or so, or maybe longer of Women's, women's shows, women-focused shows. There's a Gentileschi traveling around the country now. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like things are improving? I think so. But I think that you can't really 
you can't really say whether things are improving unless they're improving for the long term. So I feel like we're very much at the start of, you know, a long needed turn towards, you know, better gender equality in art, like a balance. Um, but we're very much at the beginning of that journey, you know, and who knows, maybe, maybe uh, the people doing it now aren't fully committed to it. And they just think, well, it's a kind of a fad. Let's like play up to that for now. And then within two years, we'll be back to exhibiting like old men without a second thought. Um, I think we won't be able to tell until it's way, way further down the line. Um, and I think, you know, for something like the art world, I think it'll probably take a generation to change because, you know, you want new collectors to come up and start being like, well, I'm going to pay this much for a woman because that's how much this piece of art deserves. You know, you need the people, you need a generational shift, I think. And I think you see that a lot with younger artists, but, you know, the art world is so conservative that, you know, I think it'll take a long time. As you've gone around to discuss this book or engaged with people who've read the book, what kinds of feedback have you had from people reading about these women, either either artists or any of the other topics as well? I had someone, I have a colleague actually, whose dad works in art and she bought it for him for Christmas. And then um, I think she I think she kind of said, well, I bet you're not going to know many of the people here in this book. And he was like, yeah, sure. And then took a look and said, actually, I don't know the majority of them, uh, which is really nice feedback to get. It's not slightly worrying because, you know, <laughs> yeah. he's someone who's actually in the art world. But no, I've gotten some really lovely feedback. I've gotten, you know, people who say stuff like, I didn't know about this artist, but then after reading about her life, I looked her up and I love it. And, you know, now I'm going to, now I want to see her next retrospective of her mm -hmm. like, past work. And that's really nice. And, you know, the, the thing that I also find really edifying is that even though these women in the book, in the Forgotten Women series, I'm saying have been forgotten or marginalized over time and, you know, but now I kind of see them slowly getting recognition, like the Helma Afkint show in, I think it's MoMA that opened this year or maybe late last year. I just love it because then you see people on social media being like, I've never heard of this woman before, but I've just gone to see her show and it's amazing. And that to me is really nice. You know, that to me just goes to show everyone's catching up. I think another thing um, that you've done with the book that's really important is you, so you've grouped the women by categories. You've got abstract, figurative, performance and conceptual, craft, photography and design. And the craft is what's really standing out to me because it's often something that is categorized as not art. And so mm -hmm. there are a lot of women who do work in this kind of craft space and are therefore automatically removed from the art conversation because craft itself is often removed from the art conversation. So it's really nice to see that included as well. Yeah, no, because I definitely think that when you look at the work of someone, you know, like Harriet Powers, for instance, like you see she's, her work doesn't, you know, very few of her work has survived. And it's very unlikely that she would have considered herself an artist even. But if you look at what it is and what it's trying to say, it is art. And I think just because craft has been considered traditionally a domestic art and therefore less of an art art form, mm. um, which I think is complete rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I couldn't do any of that stuff. It takes creative talent. So yeah, exactly. And, you know, you have people like, for instance, Hannah Riggan, who who can weave things from scratch without needing to put down a sketch like that is in, that's crazy that mm. that is probably harder to do if anything than say sketching or painting because you are literally weaving something in layer by layer um, and you know it's not just art it's like a skill it's like a technical uh, it's like a technical ability 
there's another layer to the Forgotten Women series that I think is important to point out. Each book is illustrated by a group of women artists. So not only does the series champion the stories of women, it provides a platform to showcase their talents. We were always going to illustrate the series. Um, I think because I wanted this to be a real coffee table book where you would pick it up and it would be aesthetically pleasing to look at as well as to read. And because of the mission behind the book series, we wanted all the artists who were illustrating uh, the profiles to be women as well. We found maybe 30, 40 people whose work we really liked and we felt all kind of had a cohesive feel to it. Not that the styles were totally similar, but they kind of all fit together nicely. And then we just winnowed it down to, I think, just over 10. And then they went on to illustrate the entire series. Even though the books focus on the little-known stories of some remarkable women from history, Singh tells me that she's found that the different stories resonate with a diverse group of readers. I think one of the most interesting things about writing the book series is that people really engage with the stories and they kind of find their own personal into a lot of it. And it makes people reevaluate a lot of what they were brought up to believe um, about female achievements. So um, one of the stories that I really like to tell is about how one of my friends um, read The Leaders and realized that uh, one of the story, one of the profiles was actually about her great grand aunt, I think. Oh wow! Yeah, and it was a it was a story about because one other thing that was really important to me, um, which isn't unfortunately something I explored much in the artist, is that I honestly feel like a lot of female achievement is a collective achievement. So you know, women working in groups together, um, and one of those was the Bletchleyites, who are in um, the leaders. So they basically cracked a lot of war codes during World War II coming from the Germans. Um, and they lit, and they worked in Bletchley Park, um, which is better known for Alan Turing because he was one of the scientists who work on the Enigma machine. Um, but the whole place is basically powered by women. Um, I think the majority of people who were working there were women and they were all sworn to secrecy until they died. So a lot of them died without ever telling their families that they just had a massive part to play in the war effort during World War II. And that was one of my friend's relatives. So um, she came up to me after an event and was like, you know, you were talking about the Bletchley Arts. It's the funniest thing because my, you know, my grand aunt was one of them and she didn't tell anyone. The only reason we know is that she told her son, who then told the rest of us after she died. Um, and that to me is just kind of amazing, but also kind of, I don't know, kind of melancholy really no, it, because it totally bums me out that bums me yeah out. and it puts yeah. a lot on a person to um, mm -hmm. to give so much and not be able to share that in any way exactly yeah. um but it makes me happy I think that you know the book is letting people kind of you know for my friend it kind of made her reevaluate like oh yeah that thing that grand aunt was you know secretly and it was kind of like a funny family story actually when you contextualize it within the whole of history, it's actually an amazing thing. Um, and people, yeah, people find their own personal ends into the series and that's really special to me. Hopefully this series has introduced you to at least one woman artist you didn't know before. Throughout Zing's Forgotten Women series, readers have the opportunity to discover examples of innovative thinking, creative talent, and remarkable leadership from women across a variety of sectors. Tweet us at artuk.org to let us know what you thought about today's episode, and also share some stories of women you think deserve more recognition. I'd love to see those. Thanks for listening, and be sure to tune in again next time. 